following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. This morning, uh, for our sermon, I want to look at a compelling story that began the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but, but ultimately concludes uh, a week later, the following Sunday. So just to set the, the context, the setting for all of this, I think it's important that we remember that when that first Easter Sunday began, the disciples did not wake up expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They thought that, that their hopes, their dreams of glory and power, that all of it had been dashed that Friday when Jesus had died. So they woke up that morning grieving. So as a result, uh, as we saw in the Scripture reading that Gary read a few minutes ago, when, when those ladies went out to the tomb that early Sunday morning, they didn't go out there to see if Jesus was alive. No, they went out there to put burial spices on His body. So they had no expectation of a resurrection. But of course, the ladies go out to the tomb and they get there and, and the stones rolled away and, and the body is not there. And instead, they meet an angel who tells them that Jesus is risen, that He is alive. So, of course, they ran back to the disciples, probably woke some of them up, because it's early in the morning. They tell them that, that Jesus is alive. And, and so that sets off a, a whole a train of events. What had to be quite a day for Jesus' disciples. You know, so, so Peter and John go out the tomb, and yep, it's empty. Then Jesus reveals Himself to Mary Magdalene, and Wow, like she said she actually saw him. Then the two disciples on the road to Emmaus spend time with Jesus and come back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples, we have seen the Lord. And again, they're thinking, wow, this is really strange. So all these things are taking place. But I think we can understand that even while all those things are happening on that first Easter morning, we can understand why they were still skeptical. Again, their worlds had been crushed on Good Friday, and they had no expectation of a resurrection. Have you ever been careful about getting your hopes too high because you don't want them to be dashed? So they're still feeling very skeptical. And then that evening, Jesus put all their doubts to bed. In the passage that's before us today, John chapter 20, I want to begin reading in verse 19. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture, fascinating testimony. And I particularly want to emphasize, I particularly want to focus today on verses 24 through 29 in the story of Thomas's meeting with Jesus. But in order for us to appreciate that second visit of Jesus, we need to spend a little bit of time on the first visit here in verses 19 through 23. So again, the context is, for this appearance of Christ, is that it is still resurrection day. So so it is now towards evening. Luke chapter 24 tells us that Jesus had sat down with the two disciples at the road to Emmaus at dinner time. So they saw Jesus, then they had to run all the way back to Jerusalem. So it's probably getting fairly late in the evening by the time all these things take place. And again... It is the best day in human history, right? Jesus has risen from the dead. He has already appeared to several people. So this is a day where you ought to be out in the streets celebrating, being happy that Jesus is alive. But where are the disciples? Well, they're locked in a room. And it says in verse 19, they're locked in that room for fear of the Jews. They're scared for their lives. And before we're too hard of them, I think we need to recognize that you'd probably be locked in a room too. If your master had just been cruelly executed just a couple of days prior, so they're scared for their lives. So yes, there are several witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, but the disciples are not yet convinced that it is true. But then suddenly, the passage tells us, you know, maybe they're getting ready for bed, maybe they're you know, kind of winding down for the day. Maybe they're sitting around reading some Scripture. Who knows what they're doing? But suddenly, Jesus is standing in the middle of the room. The the locked doors were, were no match for Him at all. And imagine what it was like for these disciples to lay their eyes on Jesus. Like, like, there He is. But their first thought was not joy and exuberation. Their first thought instead was doubt. Like, like is this a dream? Is this really taking place? And then that turned into terror. Actually, Luke 24, verse 37 says that they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So they thought this was a ghost. That they couldn't believe their eyes, literally speaking. But Jesus graciously looks at them as they're panicking and and frightened and frazzled. And He says, peace be with you. Now, on the most simple level, He's just simply saying to them, It's okay. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to flip out. Peace be with you. But when we think about the Hebrew concept of peace or shalom, I think it's clear that Jesus is saying more than that to these guys. So he is with them for the first time since the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, guys, it's been a rough couple of days. When you saw me arrested in the dark of night and suddenly taken away from you, you all ran in fear. You didn't stay with me. And then I was cruelly tortured and executed the following day. But it's okay. The work is finished. 
and I'm alive, and I forgive you. There's, there's no hostility between me and you for running from me that night. And then Jesus looks at his disciples with love, and he holds out his hands, and he invites them to see the scars in his hands from those massive nails that had been driven in, and also to look at what had to be an awful scar from the spear that had been driven up into his ribcage. He invites them to see all these things. And by the way, it's important to say that, that those were significant proofs of the resurrection. Because the Romans executed a lot of people. They, they crucified a lot of people. And they knew what they were doing. So when they crucified you, you were dead. There, there was nobody walking around town with the marks of crucifixion in their body. Because they were all in the grave. But Jesus holds up His hands and says, I am the one that was crucified. And I am alive. He really was the man who had been crucified and who was clearly dead when the soldiers drove that spear into his side. But now Jesus is there. He's alive. And there is no denying that fact. And so as a result, the disciples respond at the end of verse 20. It says the disciples were glad. That's an understatement. When they saw the Lord. I mean, what a moment for these guys to realize that, that all those reports they had heard throughout the day, they were true. Jesus is alive. And they never expected it. But they believed and they rejoiced. And then verses 21 through 23 follow with John's version of the Great Commission. So John, in those verses 21 through 23, uh, he, he says, I, I send you as, as the Father sent me, so he sends them to, to preach the gospel to the nations. And he also predicts that shortly thereafter, on the day of Pentecost, uh, they will receive the Holy Spirit who will enable them to walk in godliness and to fulfill the ministry that Jesus had given them. And there is a lot going on in those three verses. We could preach a whole sermon on it. And it's one of those things where, like, if I open that can, I've got to deal with it. So we're just going to leave the can of worm, all the questions and challenges of those passages. We're going to leave it shut for today and just move on. So in sum... Jesus appears to his disciples on that Easter evening. He shows them his wounds, and Luke adds that, that he also sat down and he ate some food with them to, to put to rest their fears that he was just a spirit. So he spent some time with them, eating with them, maybe visiting with them. We don't know for sure what all took place. And then he left. But, but what a life-transforming evening that had to be for the disciples. To, to see that Jesus had overcome crucifixion. He had overcome death, and he was alive. And then verses 24 through 29 shift the focus specifically to Thomas and prepare the way for a second appearance of Christ the following Sunday. So, so verse 24 tells us that, that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. And, and the text doesn't tell us why, and, and it's you know, we like to speculate about those things, wonder where was Thomas, what was he doing. It's obviously not relevant to the story because John doesn't tell us why he was gone, so, so we shouldn't worry about it either. But, but regardless, he is gone. And so imagine the scene when, when Thomas comes back. Maybe it was later that night. Maybe it was the following morning. We don't know for sure. For sure. But, but you know, think about Thomas. I mean, he leaves. And, and when he leaves, everyone is grieving. Everyone is sad. Everyone is, is, 
is mourning the death of Jesus. And, and, and when he knocks on that locked door and asks to enter, he's assuming that he's going to enter the same somber, gloomy atmosphere. But he walks in, and everyone's excited. And you can imagine you know, the other ten disciples, they all surround him, and, and they say to him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They're so excited to share this incredible news. But Thomas, Thomas does not buy into the moment. He says, now, whoa, 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 wait a minute, guys. And he famously replies in verse 25, says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, that's a downer, isn't it? You know, Thomas refuses to be duped. And again, you know, I mean, his hopes had been so high for three years. He had dreamed of all that Jesus was going to do. And then all of his dreams had been dashed and crushed when, when Jesus was crucified. So, so he's protecting himself. And, and, and he's skeptical. Like, like people don't rise from the dead. You know, if someone came to you and said, you know, Joe rose from the dead, you'd be a little skeptical too, Right? So so Thomas is a little bit skeptical. And he says here specifically, I will not believe. And that word believe is a very important word in the context of the Gospel of John. In fact, if you look down at the end of the chapter, verse 31 gives us the purpose statement for this entire book. And notice what it says. It says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. So so the whole point of the Gospel of John is to inspire us to believe. But here's Thomas, one of the twelve, and he did not believe. And so John here is very focused, on. he wants us to focus on Thomas' journey from not believing to believing. And of course he wants every one of us to follow Thomas's example, ultimately of faith in Christ. And before we go on, I also want to point out that, that for 2,000 years, because of what Thomas says in verse 25, he has had a bad rap, right? I mean, how do we all know Thomas? We all attach you know, a, you know, a, a mister of sorts. He is doubting Thomas. How would you like to be known as you know, doubting Kit, doubting Tom, doubting Jan? I mean, that... That's not what you want to be known for. So, so Thomas has got a bad rap for a long time uh, because of this statement here, but, but I don't believe that that's, that that's very fair. I mean, after all, the ten other disciples, they didn't initially re- believe the report of Mary Magdalene and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus either. They demanded proof just like Thomas did. And, and so, so Thomas here is simply demanding the same proof proof that the other disciples received. And and as well, you know, put yourself in Thomas' shoes and and think about the fact, you know, that for us, we have, the only way that we have known Jesus is through the Bible, right? We don't have any experience of Jesus other than through the Word and by the power of the Spirit. But Thomas, he had spent three years seeing Jesus with his own eyes and hearing him with his own ears, That was his experience. That was the basis of his faith. He had never had to believe someone else's reports about Jesus. But of course, Jesus recognizes 
that, that Thomas is about to have to endure a very difficult transition from faith based on experience to faith based on Scripture. And John knew that, that probably everyone who would read this letter would, would live on the other side of that transition. And it's interesting that, that John recognized, John understood that it's not easy to believe such important realities apart from personal experience. Now, I mean, folks, we live our lives. We have, if those of us who are committed to Christ, we have radically altered the course of our life based on a 2,000-year-old testimony in a book. It's incredible. And so, and so John recognizes that that's not easy. And therefore, if you have a hard time with these things, you know, you're not just sitting there jumping up, and jo- jumping up for joy at the truths we sang about because you're not quite sure they're true. Well, well, then understand that God anticipated your struggle. And He put this story in the Bible for you. So, so God understands, and therefore, because of that, I also want to mention that, that this story has tremendous apologetic value within the Gospel of John. You know, so, so think about John. I mean, John probably wrote this gospel a number of years after these events take place. Some people say up into uh, around 90 AD, so maybe up to 60 years after Jesus died. And I imagine that in those 60 years of preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus, that John had heard many times, you guys just made all of that up. It didn't really happen. You know, or, or you might really think it happened, but... But, but, you know, the mind can play tricks on you. And you guys probably really wanted Jesus to rise from the dead, and so, so you, you know, wished it so strongly that you convinced yourself that it actually took place. We've probably heard similar types of arguments in our day. But, but John here answers that charge. And he tells us here specifically that, that Thomas wasn't trying to invent a story of the resurrection. And neither were the rest of the disciples. No, instead, Thomas was resistant to the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. That's very different than trying to create something in your mind. And in fact, Thomas was was resistant even to the testimony of his closest friends. He demanded proof that Jesus had risen again, which of course Jesus is going to provide. So so therefore, despite what some people have claimed, uh, this story is not in the Bible in order to condemn Thomas for his desire for a rational faith or or to condemn him for wanting evidence that Jesus rose again. And as well, I should add, that, that when Jesus replies to Thomas in verse 29 and says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The point there is not to to kick Thomas while he's down. Or to say that it is spiritually superior to take a blind leap of faith uh, apart from ration and evidence and truth. No. John is saying to anyone that is skeptical that these things are true. We were skeptics too. We weren't looking for this. We didn't expect this. 
In fact, we did everything we could to reject it as true. But here's the evidence. Here is what happened to convince us that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I'm not going to get into it today. But I've been reading this little book in my spare time about why the Gospels are trustworthy. And it's one of the most fascinating little books that I've read in a long time. And it's fascinating to see how the Gospels bear all the marks of a historically authentic record. Hey, folks, no one, no one would question that the Gospels are true, apart except for the fact that it talks about miracles. And people can't believe that miracles are true. And so all of a sudden, they've got to find a way to explain them away. Folks, this word is true. This is an accurate record of what actually took place. And John wants us to to understand that these things are so, and he wants us to believe. Well, we'll return to the story. Thomas here demands proof. He says, I won't believe unless I can see it for myself. And it never occurred to him that just maybe Jesus was listening to him when he said that. Well, he was. And after eight days, it says to us in verse 26 that Jesus appeared. And based on how the Jews would reckon time, uh, that would mean that it was the following Sunday because they would have included the previous Sunday in their counting of time. And by the way, that's the same reason uh, why uh, the Scriptures talk about Jesus rising on the third day is because the Jews would have counted Friday when Jesus was crucified in their reckoning of days. So, so the eighth day would be the following Sunday, and the disciples are still in Jerusalem, uh, probably because they are observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, uh, and so they're still locked as well. They're still locked in the room, uh, hiding, although it doesn't, well, it doesn't say, actually, uh, here in verse 26, that they are still afraid of the Jews. But they're still there in this room. The door is locked. The big difference from the previous Sunday is that Thomas is with them this time. And then suddenly, Jesus appears in the room again. And he says to them again, peace be with you. Now, I imagine at this moment, I mean, put yourself in Thomas's shoes. He's looking at Jesus, and he thinks, wow, there he is. There's Jesus. He really is alive. And then imagine how he felt when Jesus looked directly at Thomas and he says to him, Hey Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. What a moment for Thomas. He's probably thinking, this is a little awkward. I guess Jesus heard what I said last week. And again, I think it's important to say that we shouldn't read this statement by Jesus as a challenge or as some sort of rebuke against Thomas. No, instead, we ought to read the statement from Jesus as a compassionate appeal to a man whom he loved and who he knew was struggling to believe very difficult realities. And so, and so Jesus here wants to answer Thomas's doubts. And in the process, he wants to help us with ours. 
And so there he stood, and he invites Thomas to see the nail scars in his hand, the spear hole in his side. And so Jesus says, Thomas, here is solid proof that I am alive. And then he lovingly urges Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. So so Jesus here calls Thomas to fully embrace everything Jesus has said about himself during his entire three-year ministry. I I am the Christ, and, and I really did rise from the dead. And Jesus is extending the same appeal to us. Jesus is saying to you, do not be unbelieving, but believe. So don't reject what what I have told you about my character and work. No, No, instead, again, as he says in verse 31, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe so that you can receive life in His name. And so no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's in the future, I would just urge you to recognize that that the most important question you will ever answer in your life is the question that is at the root of Jesus' statement to to Thomas here. What will you do with Jesus? Will you believe His claims? Or will you disbelieve? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe on Him. And so here in this verse, I mean, Jesus makes this claim or gives this challenge to Thomas. And then Thomas looks up at Jesus in this powerful moment where his Lord just said to him, Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answers in verse 28 with a fascinating reply. It says, And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And there's a lot that's fascinating about this statement, but one thing to begin with that's fascinating is that the book of John began. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John began this letter by saying that Jesus is God. And now here, in the final confession of faith that takes place in this Gospel, He says that Jesus is God. And Thomas affirms, he believes what what John set out to prove to be true. And I want to emphasize today that there is no salvation apart from acknowledging that simple fact that Jesus is God. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've spent a lot of time around the Scriptures, you've maybe heard that statement thousands of times. Jesus is God. But let's never forget the significance of that truth. Because if Jesus was not fully God, if He was just a God or or a powerful man or a wise teacher, His death is no different from the death of any other martyr in the history of humanity that didn't deserve to die. But if He is God, His death becomes something very different and something uniquely powerful. So so I want to emphasize today that Jesus' deity is essential to the gospel, and you will never fully appreciate the message of salvation unless you with Thomas believe that Jesus is God, full God. And because He is God, Thomas also confesses that He is 
Lord. And that word Lord, again, it's a word that we say all the time, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Maybe you say Lord 50 times in one prayer. But, but let's not miss the significance of that word Lord. That, that word Lord speaks of authority. And it's rooted in the fact that Jesus is our Creator. And He is our Redeemer who, who purchased us on the cross. And because He is the Creator and the Redeemer, He is our authority. He is your authority. And you are accountable to Him. And, and, and so Thomas here confesses that He is Lord. And, and again, this truth It is foundational to saving faith. Because if you see Jesus as just a buddy to help you fulfill your agenda, which is how so many people see Jesus, right? You know, Jesus is my friend, and He is my friend. He actually says that in John 15. But but if that's all He is, He's a friend to help me pursue my agenda, do my thing, to help me feel good about myself, to give me purpose, and hopefully to, to keep me from ever suffering any judgment and instead go to heaven today. If that's all Jesus is, is your buddy, then you are missing a foundational truth of the gospel. Now, saving faith is founded in believing that Jesus is Lord, and I am accountable to Him. And notice also, that Thomas personally applies these truths to himself. He doesn't just say that Jesus is Lord and God somewhere in outer space with no real relevance to my life today. No, he says, you are my Lord and my God. So he confesses that Jesus' divinity and authority personally apply to him. So Jesus is not merely Lord in some faraway place He rules over me. And so Thomas says, you are my master, and I will honor you, I will obey you, I will worship you. And those truths are so basic that it might be easy for us to ignore. But they are so foundational, because again, so many people want Jesus to be part of their lives. They want someone to help them when they're in a pinch, They want someone to give them purpose and meaning. But but they want to stay in the driver's seat, right? They want to really be in charge. But but that's not how it works. I mean, saving faith requires a fundamental shift in in how I stand towards Jesus. That He is my Lord. Now, now I want to be clear that that none of us are going to submit to Him perfectly all the time. We are all sinners. And, and every day of my life, I fall short of giving him the, the control that he deserves, and so do you. We, we will never perfectly submit to his lordship. But, but at the same time, folks, when, when, when you come to Christ, it involves a, a fundamental shift in how we view him. He is my Lord. He is my authority. You know, at the heart of the gospel is the fact that, that I have sinned against His sovereign will. I have broken His law and His commandments, and that matters because He is the Lord. And, 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 so, and so Thomas here acknowledges that Jesus is his Lord, and he submits to Him 
And, and praise the Lord that, that in saying all this, that, that we don't submit to his lordship grudgingly. I mean, Thomas is full of joy, right? I mean, he had spent three years with Jesus, and Thomas loved Jesus. Now, in fact, just a few chapters earlier in John, in John chapter 11, and, and the events of John 11 take place relatively shortly uh, before the events of the Passion. And, and, so, and so Jesus is with his disciples, and, and Thomas recognizes that there is a lot of hostility growing towards Jesus. He recognizes there are a lot of people that want Jesus dead. And he recognizes that following Jesus could put his own life at risk. So, so Jesus says, we're going to go down to Bethany, which was a relatively short distance from the hornet's nest of Jerusalem. And does Thomas say, eh, I think I'll go to Galilee instead? No, instead he says, let's go with him unto death. And Thomas had been ready to die with Jesus. So Thomas loves Jesus. So, so when he says here, my Lord and my God, he is filled with joy that, 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 that this is my loving master and I am glad to bow my knee to him. And, and again, that is such important perspective for us. Because as long as I try to be my own Lord, I will always be restless. You will never find rest trying to be your own master. But when I submit to Christ, embrace the fact that He is the potter, I'm the clay, He can do with me whatever He wants, because His every purpose is good, then, and only then, will you find rest. So I pray that every one of us today will follow Thomas's example and embrace Jesus as my Lord and my God. And the fact, that, and, and then notice how, how verse 31 builds on that statement. So, so Thomas, or excuse me, John builds on Thomas' statement by adding, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, so John says that, that being saved, going to heaven someday, is built on believing several truths about Jesus. He is the Son of God, which is roughly parallel to the fact that He is Lord and God. But I specifically now want to emphasize that idea that He is the Christ. And the fact that Jesus is the Christ means, or has significant in several ways, but it is particularly significant in the fact that it means that Jesus came to save. The fact that He is the Christ means that He is the Savior. And so specifically it means that when Jesus died on that cross, He took in His body the punishment for sin. I mean, I have offended God's will. I have offended the will of my Lord. And so I deserve God's judgment. So when Jesus hung on that cross, He suffered my punishment. That's the idea that He is the Christ. And because He paid the full price for my sin... I don't have to earn the favor of God or pay off His wrath. Now, how does John say I can have life in His name? He says, believe these things about Jesus. And maybe there's someone here that needs to do that today. Now, maybe you've lived your whole life seeing yourself as Lord. You know, so, so you've lived your whole life doing your own thing, going your own way, 
making your own decisions, and you've never recognized that Jesus is your Lord because He is your Creator. And you need to bow the knee to Christ today. Or maybe, on the other hand, it's that you've just always been trusting in yourself to get to heaven. You've thought, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I've, I've never done anything too bad. I've never, uh, I've never sinned too badly. I, you know, I go to church and I've been baptized. And I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. But does John say that any of that is what saves? No. He says, believing, you may have life in His name. So, so he is saying here to you, do not be unbelieving, but believe. So with Thomas, confess that, that Jesus is your Lord and your God. Confess that, that you have, have sinned against His will, you have broken His law, but you want salvation in Christ. And so cast yourself on His mercy. Trust in Him as the only way of salvation. And if you do, God promises that you will have life in His name. I mean, that means that, that today you can enjoy peace with God and, and the rest of, of, of living your life under His sovereign hand. It means that you can have power in Him to, to serve Him and do His will. And it means that you can live with Him forever and ever in glory. You can have eternal life in Christ. So, so if there's anyone here today that has not ever received Christ as Savior, you can, you can sit there in your seat at this moment and you can say to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. I have sinned against you. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in Christ and in Christ alone to save. And John says, you can have life as soon as you believe. If you have questions about what that means and your head is spinning, we'd love to speak with you today and help you know that Christ is your Savior. So please come to Him today and be saved. And if you do, notice the blessing that Jesus pronounces in verse 29. He says there in verse 29, after Thomas' incredible confession, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, now again, we shouldn't read that as a swipe at Thomas. You know, like trying to you know, kick him while he's down. Because, because Thomas, Jesus is just loving Thomas. But instead, we ought to see that statement as a compassionate word for those of us who have not had the same privilege as Thomas uh, of seeing Jesus in person for ourselves. And, and so Jesus is saying to us, that, that I understand that it's not always easy to believe these things. You know, he says, I, I know that, that, that changing the course of your life based on a 2,000-year-old book is a big ask. Jesus gets that. But he stands behind the fact that these things really happened. And he says, I have given you a sure, trustworthy record of what really happened. And so we can believe today. You know, what we are doing here today, celebrating Easter, we are not celebrating a myth. This is not, you know, in the, in the same class as, as, as the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and every other fanciful tale in our society. 
No, Jesus really did rise from the dead. These things are true. And therefore, we can believe. And Jesus here promises a special blessing on us who have believed by faith apart from sight. He says, blessed are every one of us who have believed. And what a blessing it is to know that someday our faith will become sight. We will ourselves be able to see the nail prints in Jesus' hand, the wound in His side. We will be in His presence forever and ever. And just and Jesus will bless our faith. So, so what a glorious day that's going to be when we see Jesus for ourselves. So, so with eyes of faith today, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the resurrected Savior. Let's have everyone bow their head and, either, and close their eyes. And before I pray and, and we close the service out, I just want to ask if there's anyone here today that has questions about what we've discussed, you're, you're not sure that you know Jesus as your Savior, or you just want help, and I'd, I'd like to be able to pray for you, I'd like to be able to follow up with you at some point, so if you just raise your hand so that I know uh, you would like that, let me know. All right, thank you. Anyone else we can talk with later to pray for? I see that. All right. Lord, thank you so much for this testimony, and thank you for the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that we would live in response to your truth, and that every day we would glorify your name. God, I pray for any here, that, well, for all of us, Lord, that we would live this week under the shadow of your lordship and authority. Those of us that know you, may we do so with joy and gratitude for who you are and all that you've done. And Lord, uh, may we walk in the grace and the strength that you provide. In Christ's name, amen.